Welcome to Inside the War Room. Ryan Ray here as always. Good to have you along for the ride. And again, I don't know how many days in a row this is, but we're putting out another quality episode. All we ask is a five-star review or share it with someone who you might think enjoy this podcast as my children slam the door in the background. Okay, today's guest is Ruth Markell, who is a noted author, public speaker, and the president of RNM Enterprises a leading management consulting firm. She's worked in management 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 positions, I can't speak today, in both private and public sectors. Um, but today she's here to talk about the circumstances surrounding the murder of her son and the book that has followed. And so hope you en- we'll link to all that in the show notes. So we hope you enjoyed that. And uh, be sure to check out Ruth's book and all the other stuff involved because it's a very, very complicated story as it's, as you will see by listening to the podcast. Okay, let's get to Ruth. Ruth, welcome to the War Room. Thank you. It's a pleasure for me to be here and to join you on this lovely uh, fence. Yeah, it is. It is great down here in Texas. The weather is, it was so hot and it's finally, we're getting um, some good, good weather. Okay, as I mentioned in the introduction, uh, you released a book this summer, The Unveiling, A Mother's Reflection on Murder, Grief, and Trial Life. And it, it struck me because obviously I have a, a wife and, and four kids and um, kind of walking through and kind of observing some of these stories from afar, you, you sit there and you go, how do people grapple and deal with some of the stuff? So maybe unpack, we're going to get to the book and kind of a little bit more detail, but maybe unpack the background for, uh, for the book and what kind of led up the, the events that led up to it. Sure, I think what I'd certainly like to talk a little bit about is about Dan Markell, okay, who's known as the slain professor at FSU University in Florida and in Tallahassee. And I'm Dan Markell's mother. My name is Ruth Markell. I'm Canadian. Dan was born Canadian, but he lived the most of his life really in, in the States. Uh, he went to Harvard and undergraduate. He later went to Cambridge, England and got another uh, degree there. And then post that, he went back to Harvard Law School. So he basically stayed in the States. He clerked and he worked in Washington. And uh, it's really an American story. And it's an unfortunate story. It's a tragedy. This is the story of a murder. And uh, Dan Markell was murdered in July, uh, shot first, July 18th in 2014, and uh, died on uh, July 19th um, in Tallahassee. Uh, He was uh, divorced, which is a major part of why there was a murder, perhaps. And also related was he had two young, he had two young children uh, who were very, very young at the time. And uh, one was born in in 2009 and one was born in 2010. 2010, And uh, and the murder was 2014. So really young children. Yeah, I have, like I said a minute ago, I have four. So I have my oldest is 14, knocking on 15, and my youngest is three. And so I've got uh, two there in the middle. So I've got a six-year-old and a uh, 12-year-old. So kind of have a couple young ones, but um, and, and you, you, you think about these things and you go, man, the, um, yeah, it's got, it's got to be tough. So what was it like? How did you, how did you find out? I found out, actually, it took them a while. So I mentioned he was shot. Uh, in Tallahassee on a Friday, July 18th at 11 a.m. So because we are in Canada, 
It took them a while to find us. Uh, the Tallahassee Police Department had to search for us through Facebook and other means. And anyway, we found out uh, more or less 5.30 on July 18th. Uh, but at that time, when I got the call, I got, I got the call from um, Tallahassee Emergency Department. One of his friends uh, was there and several from the university found out first and they uh, mentioned that it's not, Dan is not gonna make it. So the first call I really got was terrifying. Um, and I got it from somebody had called the local rabbi in the community because Dan was, Dan was quite observant in the sense that he, he wasn't uh, religious, but he really liked Jewish lifestyle. He really liked his identity as a Jewish person. And as a result of that, his friends thought um, that he should have somebody come like to do the last rites, you know, very similar uh, situations. And anyway, so I got the call actually first from the rabbi, and then I spoke to the emergency doctor who told me he was shot twice and he was not gonna make it. And that was terrifying. I started, I was visiting my uncle in Montreal, a 97 year old uncle, and I you know, started pacing the floor. They also told me, which was, when you really think about it, amazing, he probably would die 1 or 2 a.m. July 19th, the next morning, so to night, well, night and morning, if you know what I mean. And it was true, and, he, and I did get the final call on uh, July 19th. So it, it's, it's horrific. You, you, you know, this, you're in a daze, you're in a shock. There, there's nothing that can prepare you for any of this. And ironically, I, I have my own management consulting firm and I work in disaster planning and emergency preparedness with hospitals and schools, but that just, that just like flies out the way. You know, you're, this is not a professional conversation. It becomes a totally, totally personal situation. Yeah, and, and I, just, I mean, I guess the, with the disaster preparedness, you are anticipating a possible disaster. You know, so if you're in Houston, or Florida, perhaps a Tallahassee, a hurricane disaster prepared, right? So you anticipate that that is a logical thing that could happen within the Republic. But I suspect this wasn't within the purview of what you thought how his life might end. Obviously, a car wreck might be one thing, which would be terrible, but being murdered is not on the radar. Murder is not on the radar. It wasn't even a word in my in my vocabulary. You know, you don't even think murder as a parent. Like you said, it could be, look, losing a child is horrific for anybody. And, but then murder and any of these violent deaths, like, I mean, I'm so sympathetic. And that's one of the reasons I actually wrote the book is for the families who are victims of, of all these school shootings that, you know, you just went through in the States and we have our own stories in Canada as well. And, and this, this sort of dramatic loss with no preparation and, and no, no inclination that anything is wrong. I mean, that's the real issue here. You're not, you have no clue. Yeah, we had a family member that was murdered um, uh, six or seven years ago, I can't remember. And it was like you're saying, as I'm thinking about it now, um, I was actually sick. Uh, so I was at a clinic at night, uh, seven, eight o'clock at night, whatever it was. Um, and I'm on Facebook and I see that there has been uh, reported of a murder or gunshot or something in the neighborhood of the family member. And so I was trying to text people. I know like, Hey, just check in on this person. And the next call I get was, it was at that person's house uh, and they had been murdered and you're just sitting there going, wow. Like it's just, it's, it's so out of the blue it, because a car wreck, a heart attack, you know, a stroke, those are things that 
while they're they're tragic and they're terrible, they they have some commonality to them. But this is just so it's way out. It's way out, and, it, and then you start thinking, well, what kind of person? In this case, the person uh, who would commit this murder uh, uh, shot himself and died a few days later. But you you start going, well, what kind of person would would do that, and what would lead to that? And and, and it it's really hard to at least for us it was to wrap our mind around how how we got to this point how did you grapple and deal with that i i well initially not well because you 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 don't even come to the point of logic right when it when you're the the person who's in the initial shock emotional zone let's call it uh, you don't you don't come to logic right away and we had to so now i'll explain to you we had a lot of logistics so i'm sitting in montreal i live in toronto i don't have a passport I, and, and the murder is in Tallahassee and we have to get to Tallahassee. And uh, so I had to leave at uh, 6 a.m. in Montreal, the same July 19th a.m. from finding out at 2 a.m. Now 6 a.m. I'm getting on a plane to go back to Toronto to get my passport and to meet my daughter who lives in Toronto. And, and we go down to Tallahassee, um, you know, in the first plane out uh, from, from uh, Toronto. And then uh, we arrived there, Dan's father had, had gone before us. He met us there with some, again, the university friends at that moment where I don't wanna use the word, the welcoming committee, but they were certainly the support, you know, the whole support community and they, they were there to help us. And, um, and you know, you're, you're still in a daze and, and then it's a criminal investigation. So we had two things before we even had a chance to absorb this craziness, this loss, now the, the Tallahassee Police Department, they have to sit down with you, They first of all, and they did, and they were very, very uh, sensitive, effective. There was a, you know, a victim support uh, liaison person there, but then they have to tell you the story. And, this, and the story is complex when you're hearing it for the first time. It wasn't, you know, one of the things, I'll just give you a little bit of the details at this point. So he was murdered in his driveway and it was not a, um, you know, everybody thought it was a theft in the neighborhood. They had never even had uh, any of these type of murders in Tallahassee. You know, they've had a drug dealer murders, other kinds of murders, but this was, you know, off the wall for the community. And they thought it maybe was a random murder, but the police right away, um, you know, put that out, put that flame out that this was very specific. And it turns out it was, you know, a targeted, a targeted murder. And then the police have to go through with you, the family, the gory details um, of, you know, how he was shot, where he was shot, where he died, and, you know, the hospital, the autopsy. I mean, this is not good for you, you know, like for anybody. And, um, you know, and then they get down to business. Like, so they, you know, they introduce you to the, how do I say it? The, the, the vibe of murder. And then, you know, do you, do you have any ideas who would do it? Why would they do it? You know, what was Danny involved in? Could he even been involved in anything? You know, there's that whole, you know, kinds of questioning. But because they had a day before we got there, I must say the Tallahassee Police Department did a very, very good job uh, of really starting to question a lot of Danny's friends and, uh, you know, and getting sort of a field of what the motives could be. And you know, the police are the police and the first thing they do in this kind of case is they follow the money, which they did. 
they combed through Danny's house and uh, they found a very large insurance policy. Then they went to his office, the office of the, um, at the university, and they found more documentation of, you know, financial information. And they, you know, and right away they felt there is a substantial part of this could be a money, a money decision as well. Yeah. Okay. So obviously in this case, um, Dan's clearly, clearly the victim. He wasn't tied up in some kind of, you know, secret drug ring that was exposed. Um, but you do hear these stories where it is the opposite that like everyone thinks Dan or Bob or whoever it is, is a good dude. And it turns out that they didn't, did you have a moment going, perhaps, perhaps he was living some secret life or were you pretty confident in, no, 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 this is going to, you know, it was a random event or it's targeted because I, I could see, I could see it both ways, doubling down on who you knew or going, it's so, it's so crazy that maybe you do have to question what you understand about the world. No, so we don't we don't have a thought about um, you know like like sort of uh, random for sure because they already told us it's targeted. The the first thing you think about, okay, Danny. Let me tell you a little bit about Danny. So he was very very acclaimed, okay, as a legal writer. He was very much against the death penalty. Uh, so he, like I mentioned, he went to Harvard undergrad and 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 uh, law school, and he published a lot. And he started something called Prof's Blog, which was what's made him also so famous. Um, and that gave uh, me the thought, well, maybe because he started this blog, there could be somebody on there who could be, there's two issues, the police raised another colleague somewhere being jealous, or, you know, I said, well, you know, Danny, Danny do, does have opinions and maybe on Prof's Blog, you know, there's, there's something there. And uh, so that was the only other inter entertained thought that I had at the moment. Other family people, you know, right away felt um, that it's more, it's not so far away. Uh, you know, the story that many of these cases, they're the people who are closest to the person are often the ones who could be involved. And so that's how my thought process went at that point. I, I had no definitive um, thought about where, where, um, you know, who could have done it. So what was that like in the following weeks? So you, you kind of have this initial shock and you're trying to uh, figure out, you mentioned that there were young kids, um, you know, how was it for them to find out? How did they cope? And how was that process over the next few months? Well, it's earlier than that. Uh, so remember we live in Toronto. So the first things we had to do, this was a very complicated uh, logistical uh, death and, and then a funeral. I wouldn't even get to the first few months because I'll explain to you why this was so complicated. So Danny is now uh, murdered in Tallahassee. They're not releasing a body to, to bring back yet because it's a, it's a criminal matter, right? So this is already the medical examiner. We're, we're still in the high, you know, if you watch a TV show, which I hate to say, but you're in the sensational parts of it, you know, where the drama is the highest. So there's two, part, two problems we had at that stage. One is that um, Danny, we're Jewish, and there are certain things you do for a Jewish burial, the rich rituals. And also we had, it's an international uh, taking a body back. So we now have like three or four real, real serious issues. One is they're not releasing the body right away. Our 
um, religious belief system is a funeral should take place within 24, 48 hours maximum. That's just sort of how we do. We don't have a wake, we don't have a viewing and so forth. And here we are, we're, we're already day five in Tallahassee. And then we have to meet the international you know, burial procedures, transport. I mean, now we're talking another you know, whole story. And, and of course, afterwards, a meeting like the Jewish practices uh, to get a, ba a body uh, ready for, for burial. So those, those first days were intense. They also were disappointing in one way. Uh, we wanted to see Dan's children in Tallahassee. We, there was a major event at the synagogue there, a big, big memorial. And um, Wendy, his ex-wife, had the children with him with her, I should say, and um, quickly uh, we saw them one time at her at the, at the day of this memorial, and we wanted to go to their house the next day, and they left, and they left to go to Miami. So that was also, you know, real drama. The first thing that's on your mind is you want to see the children, right? And now they're not available, and and there's no, you know, sort of opportunity to even grieve, to hold them, to do anything. So that was the start. We, we started pretty much on a very, very difficult road in addition to the death and the grief and the sorrow and, and so forth. So the next, the next few months uh, back in Toronto, now we did have a very big funeral in Toronto and people came, you know, his friends from public school, our friends, my daughter has a lot of friends. And um, after the funeral, uh, we went, we had to go back to Tallahassee one or two times more, like FSU made a huge memorial. And, and then we came to the unveiling. Now the unveiling is the title of my book, okay? And the unveiling is called, the book is called The Unveiling, A Mother's Reflection on Murder, Grief, and Trial Life. Now, why did I call it The Unveiling? Because in the Jewish tradition after about five months, which was pretty much what we had for Danny or, or any choice of time before 11 months. So there's a tombstone that's placed on the grave site. Okay, and that is the very common service that concludes, let's call it the funeral, the post funeral activities and so forth. And there's an inscription on the tombstone and that is covered, okay, until you have the unveiling, which is a ceremony where everybody comes together and sees what's on the tombstone. But what was most significant for me at the unveiling in the days before now, because if you consider the tombstone as the finality, right? It's, you know, like the last nail in the coffin, the expression, this is what it is. There's nobody getting out of the ground. And that was the start of my real grief journey. And that's why I wrote the book to really talk about two things in the unveiling. One is the grief journey. And the second is to lift the veil to the public to see what does it mean to be a victim of murder? What are all these families going through? What is the trial life? How does it feel You know, from investigations, arrests, hearings, trial life? and uh, you know, roster of witnesses. So this is what the book is about. And it deals with unveiling to the public, lifting the curtain, lifting the veil and explaining what is the victim's experience.
So what was the grief process for you and your family? Well, it, it's it's not finished. Okay, now I'll explain to you why. So the next the next process is I wish it was, you know, we aren't. This is not a normal life. Uh, I call it a, a life sentence, really. When you have uh, so this is a murder for hire. In the end, there's there's been four people who already have uh, gone through the the court system. This also makes it very unique. The actual shooter, his name was Zigfredo Garcia. He was convicted for life. Then he had worked with his best friend, Luis Rivera, who um, actually is also in jail. He plea bargained and he brought in the woman. Her name is Catherine McBanawa, who was the person who gave the money to the, um, the driver and the shooter. And she was just re recently, really recently, um, May of 2022 now had a final conviction of uh, murder for life, solicitation and conspiracy. And the next very big part of the story is the recent, on April 2021st 20, 20, um, of 2022, the brother of Wendy Adelson, which is the ex-wife of, of, um, of Dan, her brother, Charlie Adelson, was arrested and he's now in jail. And just this last week, he was denied an Arthur hearing, which is bail. So to answer your question about the grief process here, there is no ending. So we are going through each one of these trials and now uh, Catherine is appealing, there's hearings and so forth. So once you are in a, particularly a murder for hire, all it is is just more and more and more. Like now we're in our eighth year, but this, this it was two years where there was quiet, there was no arrest, but for the last you know six years and more, we're really just going through you know one trial. It's a roller coaster. Yeah, and uh, you mentioned that um, I believe the first one you said is, is uh, Siegfried, um, and he sentenced to life. Um, earlier, you mentioned Dan was not a death penalty; was against the death penalty. Correct. Uh, has this? I don't. I don't know what your stance was before. Did you agree with Dan? Has this changed your opinion? What are your thoughts on on that as it pertains to your case? Well, that actually Garcia was was charged with the death penalty too. He didn't, that was like, so there was two parts to his, oh, uh, okay. to his um, initial charges. The death penalty was talked about with him right away. And he did not, on sentencing uh, the jury, that was the only thing the jury did not uh, allow was the death penalty. But there was a lot, a lot of talk because Danny, other academics of who knew Danny well, because Danny's now noted in his world, they right away, they told the prosecutor, you know, drop the death penalty. Are you kidding? How can you have the death penalty? And, you know, and so on. But we knew we had an option and, and it, you know, it, it, the, the prosecutors use everything for leverage and there is a point where it could be dropped. So that was the, the reality here. But it was really where he was initially actually charged with the death penalty as well. And would you have been okay with that? To go through it? Yeah. Probably not. No, I don't think I could have done it knowing Danny's uh, and knowing the real story. Um, you know, there, the, there's other people who have been now charged and allegedly 
uh, could be criminals. So we don't know, like, you know, and, and so that's an important point also that it, this case is ongoing. Um, it has, um, it's because it's a conspiracy case, which makes it very different, you know, even than a lot of the other cases that everybody knows. And the, and I'll, you know, and I'm learning as I go along, you know, there's three kinds of evidence that you need. The evidence is the mantra, right? And in the criminal world, it's like all about evidence. What can mm -hmm. you admit? Who can admit it? You know, this kind of stuff. But what is really different here, there's three types of evidence, okay? There's state evidence, there's federal. So the FBI is very involved in this case. Although the murder occurred in Tallahassee, all of these people live in Miami and uh, that area, not necessarily Miami proper, but mm -hmm. around that part of uh, South Florida. And that's not in a, the Tallahassee Police Department zone. That's now FBI. So FBI is a major, major player. And that's federal evidence. And the fact that there's so many people involved, it becomes conspiracy evidence. And I'm giving you a legal lecture that yeah. I learned along the yeah. way, but, but it's incredible. Like, so you need to understand the federal, the state, you know, and conspiracy evidence, and they don't always work together. So you, so the, the case is complex in terms of, you know, what standards are you meeting? and what evidence is admissible and so on. It's a complicated case. Go back to the first trial. Um, you mentioned you've kind of gone through this several times and you're learning and you're, I don't think you're a lawyer to my knowledge. And so you're, no. you're definitely not a lawyer in Florida state law or US federal law if you are a lawyer. So this is gonna be a process. Um, how, it, how is that going through that, the grief process looking for the justice as well, um, and also trying to understand what's going on in the courtroom with the stakes so high. So like if we were to watch, if I were to watch a trial on TV, the stakes for me aren't that high because it's, it's disconnected. But in, in, in your position, every objection, every piece of evidence entered, every juror look away, probably like I can imagine is, is almost nerve wracking. It, it's very intense. You know, there, there are certain times when certain witnesses uh, are called in and you're really hopeful that they, you know, may do a good job, let's call it, uh, in terms of revealing the evidence. And, and, and then there's also, um, you know, the whole experience of the roster of witnesses. What was the most fortunate break in this case was that the neighbor who lived next door to Danny saw, you know, heard the, heard the shots and he himself called, he called the, um, you know, the emergency, the dispatch. And, um, but he also saw a, on the driveway, he saw a car and he identified it as a white, silver or green Prius. That piece of, that brings you now to the other part of all this, which is, you know, we don't, none of us think it's 1984, you know, the book, that the, the guy, everything is watching you. Every, every, every uh, camera that was on the buses, the cameras at the gym, the cameras on Danny's street and, 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 and in the toll, you know, in Florida, when I don't know much about Texas, but you know, when you travel interstate even, they have toll areas where you stop and you know, Florida, uh, it, it's one toll and they had there, they had the cameras and they had the time periods of when the different cars went through. So this is like a, like another whole world. You're talking about 
uh, you know, learning not only what's in the court, it's what outside the court, which becomes so much so dramatic too. And what is it like from your perspective, thinking not about the defendant, but the defense attorney? Do you are you able to appreciate that the job that they're tasked with, or do you go, how can you ever represent someone like that? You know what? There, there's a little bit of both uh, in the sense that uh, the the initial part about the defense attorney, you know, trying to present uh, the case of the person not being guilty, that's you know reasonable, right? Like you you you're that you're prepared for, even like from watching TV. And but then when they go off on a tangent and they and they try in this last part um, of the retrial, there was a retrial for Catherine McDanawa. And that, and in that trial, they, the defense claimed that she was totally innocent, and all the interactions were between Garcia, who was the shooter, and Charlie Adelson, and that didn't go over. And that was, that was like to me, taking too far a shot, you know, trying to say that Catherine McBanua, who was the go-between, who was the, this is the irony of this whole story. She, she was in, uh, let's call it a common law relationship with Sigfredo Garcia, had two children from him, but then later on dated, dated Charlie Adelson in between when they were kind of breaking off. I mean, the story is, I don't, you're young, so I don't know if you know what Peyton Place was. It was a major TV show many years ago that talked about in a small community, all the intricacies. And this is what this whole case is just full of. But the point is with, with the defense, going on this tangent now of saying Catherine McDaniel was not even involved, that, that's just off the wall. How much about Dan's death did you learn in the trials themselves versus what you knew going into the trials? Okay, so I, in, in terms of the causation, like um, I didn't learn any, and no, in terms of the, the reason or the evidence, no, the only thing, but I'll, I'll share this with you, which is the first part of any of these trials is, is actually the autopsy report and the medical examiner's report. And they tell you everything, but I personally don't go stay in the court. I can't, I don't wanna see the visuals. Um, my, my daughter and dad's father, they do stay in, they just put their, you know, they put their head down. I, I can't even like want to be there just to, um, you know, hear, hear that. So the actual, you know, they really go into, and, and everybody comes and talks about the initial death, like the police on the scene and this, you know, so it's very, very uh, intense and negative for me personally. Um, so that, that's really something different. Like you, you know, like they don't even show that really on TV that much, you know, when you talk about being prepared, there's right. no, you know, there's no preparation for this. So, so that's hard. That's very, very hard. So you mentioned that the, 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 the there's four uh, people, I think we went through that have either they're in, in process of trial or have been tried and convicted. And you said that there's three levels of evidence. There is the, the state, the federal and the conspiracy. What is the conspiracy? The conspiracy means that there's several people who are in charge, and that's sorry, not in charge, involved, not, not in charge, I said that wrong, that are, that are involved. And how they are involved um, depends upon their communications, 
the cell phone records that they have, they have wiretapping of all of the interactions of these people. So it's not just the idea that like four separate individuals are there, it's how they communicated uh, and planned, you know, cert certain parts of the, um, the actual uh, murder in addition to the payment, you know, like the follow the money. So how, how was the money paid? Who picked it up? Who delivered it? Where was it happening? And the wiretapping in this case is extensive. Uh, there was also um, what they call a, a sting or a bump. I don't know if this is sort of a, a criminal story, which is a sub story in the case, uh, which was the FBI created uh, a situation where they, they went to um, Donna Adelson, that's Charlie's mother and Wendy's mother. And they told her that, you know, they had to give her $5,000 so that she, um, they, they would uh, wanna pay uh, Rivera's family more because they didn't feel he's taken care of enough. Like this is the essence, but it's not that interaction that counts. It's what happens subsequent to that where the wiretapping in the case is so significant and that, and that is really the idea that the conspiracy, okay, what they have on the wiretapping and what they have on the cell phone uh, satellites. I mean, this is the new world. I mean, you, if you would listen to the court presentation, I would say that, you know, just the whole idea that they just could track everything down, you know, where you were, who pinged the other one and so forth. But this, what is the state alleged, or the state's alleging that these people conspired? Why does the state think that they conspired? So obviously we know what, the, what they did, but what's the why? The why? Okay, the why of the essence of the story is allegedly the Adelson family wanted Danny murdered, okay? And through Catherine McManawa, um, who dated Charlie, she was the facilitator to bring in uh, Zucredo Garcia, who became the shooter. So that's that's the story in a nutshell. And, um, and that's how it becomes a conspiracy. All these people are allegedly involved. I'm not saying- Yeah, so the state, what's the, the state point. alleging happened? So the state's yeah. alleging that the Adelson family um, conspired to kill um, your son, but but is that for, is it for money? Is it because of, just didn't like him. No, they wanted to. So, so after there was a very contentious divorce uh, between Danny and Wendy, and the family and Wendy wanted to move to South Florida, but the divorce uh, and this this is all related to to that as sort of part of the background, the context of the family issues, and as a result of that uh, divorce, there was shared custody. It was not sixty forty; it was fifty fifty, and the family. Uh, tried to, particularly Wendy and her mother, to petition to the court in Tallahassee um, that the children should be able to leave and go to live with them in South Florida. And that never happened. So that is the sort of basis of uh, the intense desire for everybody to move to South Florida. Uh, you know, you can almost say no matter what the cost. So here we are. At this point now, present day, how, I know you've gotten some advocacy, advocacy stuff that you've gotten into. Um, how is your relationship, if at all, with Wendy or your grandkids? Okay, so my relationship with Wendy 
after the arrest of Zixfredo Garcia, okay, um, which was in 2016. So Dan died in 2014, was killed, I should say, or murdered. Um, and we, I went for two years. I actually, the first two years, we visited uh, the children. I even, Shelly has young children and also they're much older than my American grandkids. That's how I refer to them. But um, so what happened was they, um, they allowed us to visit. And then after um, uh, Zegfredo Garcia was arrested and there was a whole period of discussion of arrests and so forth, um, I became quite alarmed of, you know, maybe the Department of Family and Children's Services will come in and, uh, you know, as they're going to school and there'll be further arrests and so forth. So I made an inquiry and, um, and that inquiry into a um, family uh, organization that has um, overnight emergency services uh, became revealed by error through the, uh, at one time through the prosecutor's notes and what happened was then when they decided that's the mother that we should not ever see the children again and then that was corrected we had lawyers explain and da, 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 and so forth but that never happened so we were deprived of seeing the kids from 2016 until april 2022 and because this is a very well-known case we've had the benefit we're privileged there's a lot of media available to us there's a lot of media that we didn't even go on at the beginning, but then in um, from 2016 to 2022, uh, Dateline NBC had programs, um, ABC had 2020. There's a podcast which is very successful over my dead body. This is a very well-known case in the, you know, let's call it the media world. Also, Danny's close friend, uh, Jason Solomon, started something Justice for Dan. I'm not sure if you saw that on. In social media, it's on. It's there's Justice for Dan posts, which are Facebook, and this started a whole petition of why we should be able to see the children, and it, and that we went out, uh, Phil and I, on the shows to talk about the grandparent issues, and that's a huge issue on its own. Grandparent alienation. This is so in my life story right now. You know, there's grief, and then there's the whole issue of grandparent alienation. A totally different topic which I share with millions of others, right? Who don't have access to the grandchildren. But I decided, and I was very fortunate, I got some excellent support. And here I am sitting in Canada, but one of Dan's friends, I'll make the story short, uh, she approached me and she said, what can I do for you? And I said, grandparent alienation. And she says, done. And this was in October, 2019. I, I knew what to do from 2016. And I tell this to other families, you know you might want to start a foundation for your child. You want to do all these big projects. Mine was grandparent alienation issues. And I didn't do it right away because I really wasn't capable emotionally yet. I waited till after Garcia's trial and I said grandparent alienation and she says done. She happened to be working in Tallahassee and media. And amazingly, we had a couple of tries in 20. Uh, 20, like just the um, Senate wanted it. We were so successful in 2022, just recently. And um, a, the Grandparent Act uh, was passed by the legislature and the Senate in Florida, and it informally called the Markell Act. It was signed by Governor DeSantis in June 2022. 
So this is a major success on advocacy. I mean, where, where do you ever see this? And it's, it's similar to, although much smaller in effect, but it's like mothers against drunk driving. This is what this is. And this is, and my message really to the public, which is why I wrote the book, is, you know, don't worry about it. Like your grief is going to be there, but you still can um, do other things. And I have a, a little slogan, don't get lost in the loss, L-O-S-S. So, which is whatever. And that's not just for this terrible story. You know, all these people suffering from the pandemic, losses in their family. I mean, there's so much suffering now. You know, it's, it's a different, besides the political unrest issues, personal suffering is very high. And so advocacy was my way of finding meaning. So grandparent alienation um, is, what is, so that, that's a broad term, obviously. Um, are you, are you, is it a narrow focus on certain types of grandparent alienation? Or are you saying broadly that you want to support it regardless? How do you determine? Because obviously there's probably cases where it might be best for grandparents to not be involved or parents for that matter as well. So there's obviously uh, situations where certain people shouldn't be involved. How as you, an advocate do you distinguish which cases you support and which ones you don't? Well, the, the cases that I would support is where it is appropriate for grandparents to continue visiting their children. And the appropriateness can be decided uh, by a court. It can be decided uh, in a family agency model. It can be decided in collaborative models. So those are, those are the points where, where a child should be helped to continue seeing their grandparents is where the visitation is helpful to the children. In other words, not cutting them off. Uh, from the grandparents because there's parental alienation. You know, what also happens frequently, mine is an extreme, our, our uh, law that was passed is very specific, but there are many cases where, grand, where sorry, an adult child uh, has to go to jail for committing a felony or drug abuse, or, and you know, this is massive now, right? And then the grandparent takes uh, care of the children and then, and then the adult child, let's call it, comes out and they say, bye-bye, we don't need you anymore. But they've just reared the children and, and suddenly the children are victimized as well. And it's another trauma for them. So those are the situations that, that I'm mostly interested in, the visitation aspects of opportunities for continuity of children to see their grandparents under circumstances which are helpful to the children. And you said that you saw your grandkids in April of 2022. Is that correct? Yes, I did. We had a visit. What was um, that like? Well, I'll go back a little bit. So what happened here was as the law was passed, or the, let's call it the noise of the law is a good way of saying it. And also um, uh, there was Catherine McBanawa had a trial that was set for February 2022. Um, but the prosecutors felt that they had some material which would help them in actually um, defining her final conviction, which was an enhancement of a, of a video at the Dolce Vita restaurant in Florida. And they wanted to postpone it. So the trial for February was postponed to May, May 2022. And then all of a sudden, in February, I get a, a note that I haven't spoken to Wendy or contact her now for a very long period of time. 
She's inviting us to the bar mitzvah of her son on May 14th. The bar mitzvah is for a Jewish boy to have a 13th birthday and a big ceremony normally. And, um, and we were like delighted and shocked at the same time. And, uh, and then as time went on a little bit, we, I communicated back to her. I said, you know, Wendy, I said, um, if we're gonna come to the bar mitzvah, which we definitely are coming on May 14th, uh, can we see the kids for ice cream on May 13th? They haven't seen us now. Here, here these two people, you know, show up from nowhere. Like, that's even crazier, right? So then she wrote back, if you want an in-person visit, come in April. And we did. We just jumped on it. I don't know if she expected it, but that's really what happened. And we went, we went for a day um, in the morning. Uh, we took a flight from Toronto. We arrived in uh, South Beach, Miami. And we see the children and, and really, we couldn't have asked for a better visit. It just really considering the, the extent of the time away and so forth, it went very well. And, and we had a plan, the limited time, it was like an afternoon visit after school, it wasn't a whole day event, but just the idea of face-to-face -face interaction and you know recognition, let's even call it. And, and it, it really went well. We go back to the airport, we did everything in the one day. And, and we fly home, we leave nine o'clock uh, uh, Miami. We arrive in Toronto more like 12.30, 1 a.m. At 6 a.m. in the morning, I get a call from the FBI. Charlie Adelson is arrested. So this is like in 24 hours, two crazy breakthroughs. I wow. mean, like this, this case is nuts as it is, right? Totally nuts, complicated. And here we see the children and um, and then afterwards, Charlie's arrested. And that would be their and, uncle, uh, right? Sorry? Charlie's their uncle. Their uncle, correct. Yeah. And her brother, yeah. So um, this was like off the wall, really, in real life. And what happened after that, not long after uh, that arrest, Wendy decided to disinvite us to the bar mitzvah because she felt, you know, it might not be safe. So we kind of go back to some of the original patterns but at least we saw the children, which was very important. And then I asked her to do a Zoom. Now, Shelly's children, my daughter in Toronto, they're big kids now. They're, nine, they're 20, 22, 19, and 16. And if kids haven't seen each other for six years, believe me, that's a long time. You know, like a 12-year-old oh, yeah. boy to an 18-year-old boy. And yeah. the same thing with the girls. So that was important. They did one Zoom call. And that was, that was helpful. So for me now, at least I know we all have some, I'll call it in a funny term, face recognition mm -hmm. as adults, not nobody's an adult, 13 year old, 12 year old, but I don't think they'll forget so quickly, you know, what everybody looks like. And that's important. Mm -hmm. Did you have any um, idea that he was gonna be arrested? Obviously not that day, but were you like that? that no. Moving in that direction? No, that was, you know, we are, we are, quite familiar with some of the things because they do uh, consult as victims in Florida um, and, and different parts of the states, you have some rights, but we had absolutely no, no idea. Well, I can't imagine just, just the pure shock of that. I mean, going through what you've been through, do you find yourself still shocked or is it sometimes maybe a little bit harder to be emotionally up because of all the adrenaline I'm sure you've had to expend over the years. Well, this is the real problem, right? If you look at 
you know, the, this grief process, you hit it right on the, the nose or the level, whatever you want to call it, the nail. The, the, we live a lifestyle, which is a roller coaster. I call it a seesaw. After, just to put, put it into plain English in criminal terms. So after Catherine McBanua, who just was convicted, she's now appealing her trial, just to show you the steps of what this feels like. Then Charlie Adelson, who was arrested in April 21st, now just last week, uh, had a, a September 9th, an Arthur hearing it's called, which is a specific hearing for um, the idea of having bail. Okay, so this is just last week. And July 29th, um, which was a month after Catherine's, um, no, a little more than a month after her conviction, they're sentencing which you do a victim impact statement. So there's no free lunch here. My, my expression when somebody says, you know, about something with justice, with closure, closure is a word in the dictionary. It's just, you know, not happening. Now we just finished last week a major hearing. The hearing on the Arthur hearing was very big. And there's a case management meeting in December for Charlie Adelson, and there's an expected trial now uh, somewhere between January and April 2023. So there's no there's no resolving the grief. This is another important point. Mm. And and it's very it's a very, very uh, this is the sad part of this drama is that behind there's nothing glitzy here. You know, everybody watches and looks at all these murder cases, but the victim is in a very, very difficult position and it's continuous. And in your case, it's compounded because um, there's multiple defendants that aren't being tried at the same time. And so it's, it's multiple trials, multiple appeals. And so it is just a continuous nature. And I'm sure they will appeal for, for years to come because that's just the way the, the, the process works. So you've got, you know, years of, of this to look forward to. How do you deal with that mentality, knowing that perhaps the rest of your life, obviously your son's not going back, so you got to do with that, but you're always going to have to deal with, these court things and what would you advise would you give people to know how to do with that long that long road to hoe i i would well i would say there's parts that you can do okay so for me um the good part in the book it's there too the fact that we passed the grandparent legislation i call that going from you know grief to promise to outcome so we so there's a piece there that i certainly feel um you know, good about, let's call it successful. The victim, the justice system is very hard. And the book talks about it. That's really what, the, you know, a lot of the book is to expose other families and the public. You know, there's this case had tremendous politics in it. This case, you know, here's what I'm right about, right? The lessons I learned, right? But I also say, and this is really important, as much as there's all of this negative pieces, one of the things that you have to know uh, in any part of where you're a victim or any difficult trauma, we're all in trauma, is that to support. And the support that we received is critical, okay? And we have, and I often say, um, you know, my life is full of trauma and gifts. The gifts, and you have to see the gifts. That's the next part of you, helping other people know what they have to do you have to not do gratitude like a pop psychology term that it is today. You know, they tell you to wake up in the morning and do a gratitude journal. You, you know what I'm talking about, right? This is 
one of the in things. There's nothing wrong in doing that, but the expression of the gratitude it, and the feeling of it is what I think is, is very important. So I will tell you that this whole community, um, you know, family, friends, uh, law enforcement, clergy, it takes the whole community to keep a family like this going. And we, and the media, and I have to say, we are fortunate, right? We, we are privileged with the media part. Many times the media are not in your favor or they're in your face, let's call it. That has not been the case for us. So that's a big privilege too. So I do express gratitude and, and I, you know, do really say that that's one of the things that, you know, keeps you motivated knowing you can bounce back in this case, a case like this, you're not rebounding like to, you know, where, where you were, like mm -hmm. you've acknowledged the, the actual continuous trauma. What's it like waiting on the verdict? Waiting on, oh, that's horrific. That, that was, you know, the, the, the first time, uh, Garcia was, was sort of a little more clear cut, but when, um, when uh, Catherine McDonough, we had a mistrial the first time for her, that was like crazy. We, you know, one of the tasks, so this is what we could share with other families. It's also in the book, you know, we write uh, family statements after all of the major hearings and different things. Um, and when, when, when Catherine McBanua had a mistrial, uh, we, we had prepared ourselves because both of them were tried in the same trial. Uh, they could be acquitted even, they could be uh, convicted together, you know, jointly different things, but never did we think about a mistrial. So that's really hard, the deliberation. And then that was, we, we were, you know, at first we were novices anyway, mm -hmm. but that really triggered that feeling, you know, of this is, uh, an, an experience that you don't want to have. Deliberations, the jury deliberations, this time it was eight hours. Wow. I mean, they came, they came back uh, very positively for us, for her, like she was convicted very on all three charges, um, you know, murder, consp conspiracy and solicitation. So that was a very successful experience, but you're still waiting. And, uh, you know, and as you see on TV, you never know what the jury does. So this is, this is, um, it was, it's, it's a lot of learning in this whole process. And, uh, and like I said, there's a lot, a lot of learning and there's a lot of thanks that we have to talk about as well. So for most of our audience, they won't experience what you went through, um, but they will talk about these things, right? These large cases when they see them from your perspective, how should the general public engage in these issues on social media? Uh, not not with they know the victim, uh, the, the victim's family per se, but just watching the trials or, or whatever. How should we talk about them? I think what what I would like to talk about the most is, you know, homicide doesn't discriminate. Uh, this is an important point from status, uh, social levels and so forth. And all these uh, um, shows on, you know, the criminal and so forth, what you watch on TV, just remember there's a victim and the family behind who is suffering. Because the, in this case, there's so much drama here. This case has, you know, and it is well talked about and so forth, but the victims of violence and of grandparent alienation specifically here as well are really suffering. So what I say is try to create in yourself some more sensitivity and more compassion. And to the people who you might know of suffering, 
from other loss, really remember that. It, I think that's a major message, not to just get caught up in the glitz, because this has glitz. What's the one thing that you would like to see changed about the American justice system? Well, I, I think if the justice, I think it's, there's two things which are changed or work differently. I would actually say from a victim's point of view, now I'm wearing the victim hat. Um, I think the uh, criminal justice system can define the key terms to the families of victims much earlier and possibly better to the jurors, okay? There's, there's, the jurors get their instructions on the morning of the day that they start deliberation. And there's, they're like a, there's a 12 page document or so in Florida of what the uh, rules of conviction are. And I think that's not healthy. I don't think that, and it's not, when, if the public had some awareness before and even, and I'm talking about the victims learning, you know, through, through the process, deliberation, sidebars, you know, you see on TV, right? We, our case a lot, I, if you watch any of the testimony, you know, the, the judge and the lawyers, they go to the side, you know, what are they talking about? What did, what's, you know, the deliberation. So that is gonna be areas where the justice system, and it's not gonna expose anything, can really just be more explicit to clarifying the key terms um, in a, you know, first degree murder, conspiracy case, you know, what does it mean? And then, and similarly, actually, not just for the victims and other people, who are watching it, but also I think for the jurors. Okay, where do you, obviously we're going to the book, but where else would you like to send people to, to follow more about you, the case, uh, website, anything like that? I have a website, yes, it's, it's uh, so if anybody wants to read further, there's two, there's a lot of places to follow this case. Um, the, first, the first is I do have a website and it's called ruthmarkell.com. The other place is Justice for Dan Posts. This is if you want to follow now everything that's happening in the case. And it's on Facebook, but it's also, you just have to Google Justice for Dan Posts. And in addition to that, there's all of the podcasts, uh, not just of my book tour, but, but have been active, right? Um, if anybody wants to follow the legal part of the case, um, they just have to Google and you'll just now get the Arthur hearing. Uh, Florida Politics is also uh, a journal or whatever who, uh, online that really does extensive write-ups of each part of the uh, convictions, the trials, the uh, grandparent issues, and so forth. So we're blessed with a lot of follow-up. And if anybody wants to read, uh, you know, there are a lot of crime junkies, as people call themselves. Uh, this case has everything in it. Okay. We'll link to all that in the show notes for the listeners. Thank you so much for your time and telling your story. I really enjoyed it. I, I, I feel odd saying enjoyed it. That's just my normal thing, but I, I appreciate it. I should say. No, thank you. And I, and I really think the exposure in the book, the victim, you know, part of uh, my book, the unveiling is really important uh, that, that the public see what it is like, because I talk in the book about grief, I talk in the book about the trial life experience, and I also talk about resilience and hope. And I think that everybody will find something in there that they can use in terms of their own um, journey or trauma or, or curiosity, because the, there's a lot of interest in crime. Okay.
Thank you so much, Ruth. Thank you. Okay, there it is, my interview with Ruth. Hope you enjoyed it. If so, drop a five-star review or share this podcast with someone who might enjoy it. And we'll talk to you tomorrow.